G'day. And welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson, and I will be your host today as we dive into progressive museum practice in all its forms. This May will mark five years since I first moved to America to work at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The time has gone by impossibly quickly, and there have been lots of changes in my life and in the world at large. The museum sector in America seems different from when I arrived half a decade ago, too. The conversations seem harder. One of those conversations is around the conditions of working in this sector, which expects so much of its people, and sometimes with little reward. One of the early challenges that moving to the US brought was that it came with my first major salary negotiation. Many of the jobs that I'd worked in Australia had been clear and upfront about salary expectations. And salary ranges are quite different between the two countries. So trying to make sense of my value in the sector here and figuring out what an appropriate range for the job was going to be was pretty difficult. I aimed high. But that was as much from naivety as a belief in my self-worth and what I should be paid. These days, I still struggle when students ask me what the correct or appropriate salary range for various jobs in the sector are. And this is a real challenge for our sector for a number of reasons, as you will hear in today's episode. We're going to investigate salary cloaking and salary transparency and its impact on our sector and on our emerging museum professionals. Incidentally, this was the only episode I've ever struggled to find guests for and have in fact been turned down for, in this case by a museum HR manager who wasn't willing to speak about this topic on the record. Hiring practices are tricky, but until we can speak about them openly, it's going to be difficult for us to create more equitable institutions. So I'm grateful to my guests today who were willing to jump into this discussion. A native of Tallahassee, Florida, Will Stoutermeyer received his PhD in history with an emphasis in public history from Arizona State University in 2013. He currently serves as the director of the On-Campus History Museum at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, the G.W. Frank Museum of History and Culture, and as a graduate lecturer in the UNK Department of History. Dr. Stoudemire has previously worked on projects for the Museum of Florida History, the ASU Museum of Anthropology, the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, and the National Park Service. Lauren Hunley has spent over 15 years in the museum field, earning her Master of Arts in Learning and Visitor Services in Museums and Galleries through Leicester University in England. She's worked for both small museums and national museum service organisations. She's the author of 101 Museum Programs on a Shoestring Budget and has presented at numerous museum conferences. She's currently the community historian at the Western Heritage Center in Billings, Montana, and serves on the board of directors for the Mountain Plains Museums Association. Lauren, well, welcome to Museopunks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
It's so great to have you both here. So you are both on the board of directors of the Mountain Plains Museums Association. And on September 11, 2018, the board unanimously voted to require that any jobs or paid internships posted to the MPMA job bank would include the level of compensation. Now, that could be annual salary or hourly wage range. And you also voted that unpaid internships must include that fact in the posting and all changes became effective in on October 1, 2018. So I wonder, Will, maybe you can start us off. Why did the association make these changes? Well, so this began, uh, of course, well before September 11th and a series of conversations that Lauren and myself and other members of the MPMA board had regarding some of the kind of workplace equity issues that are a hot debate in our field right now, not just within the MPMA region, but nationally and internationally. And uh, the desire amongst those of us on the board who were discussing this was to uh, see what the regional organization that we were a part of could do uh, to present possible solutions to some of the workplace equity issues that we see. And so this actually began uh, about eight months before that that vote in the board meeting in that September uh, when we formed the Workplace Sustainability Committee, uh, which Lauren and I are both members of, and began surveying our members and uh, talking with them in more informal and formal ways at conference sessions uh, about what issues were uh, relevant to them, what workplace sustainability issues they saw in their daily lives and what we as a committee and as a branch of the larger advisory board could do to help them uh, deal with those issues. And out of those conversations, we found uh, not really too much of our surprise, I think, that that uh, salary range listings and, and, and salary cloaking was uh, a big issue for a huge proportion of our membership and something they wanted us to tackle. Why do you think that this issue of salary cloaking was one of the sort of priority issues? You said that the Workplace Sustainability Council actually was was speaking with members to get a sense of the range of issues. Why do you think this one stood out so much and was sort of the first one or was it the first one you tackled? Um, so I think it was, first off, it was the first issue we tackled. Uh, we did a membership survey over the summer of that year uh, as part of a larger MPMA membership survey. We included some questions regarding these issues and asked our, our members to prioritize uh, what issues were of greatest or least concern to them. We gave them about seven different options, among which was listing uh, salaries or at least a salary range on the job bank. And over 40% of people said that that was their highest priority. So it was the one we decided to tackle first. Um, it's you know it's hard to say why uh, that issue stands out amongst all of the others. Maybe because it's something that affects pretty much everyone equally in this field, especially when they're an emerging professional or a mid-career professional looking to make a move into another organization. I think many of us have. Uh, personally or had colleagues go out onto the job market and, and seen the kind of difficulties that arise from uh, applying for positions that are uh, unclear as to, as to what the, the compensation will be. 
Yeah, that's really interesting and great. And in fact, we're going to talk a little bit about what the implications are of salary cloaking for the sector. But just going back to the board discussion, you said it took about eight months. And I assume some of that eight months was your research and was that work that you were doing. What were the other factors in the discussion? Did you get any pushback from people in the sector who were concerned about the salary transparency and what that might do for the sector? Lauren, maybe you can tackle that one. Uh, Absolutely. So the first conversation that we had that the Workplace Sustainability Committee grew out of that original conversation, I won't say that there was any pushback in the realm of people being opposed to listing the salary. Uh, There were some concerns raised about how do we implement this? What kind of timeline does it have? Are we going to get any blowback from the organizations that already use our job bank? Uh, So we took the time after that initial conversation, as Will said, to to do the membership survey uh, and to really kind of have the information from our members to take back to the board so that we could do our members' priorities first and not what we thought our priorities should be. And at that point, once we presented this information to our board and we presented kind of a pseudo plan to implement uh, this requirement or or this change, uh, the board really came through with flying colors and, and there was very little opposition uh, in that realm. And Actually, we just had another board meeting uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were pleased to hear that there, all of those concerns have really uh, been groundless. We have seen no blowback from the other organizations that use our job bank. Uh, the implementation went incredibly smoothly, and that our uh, that we have actually seen some other organizations kind of take notice and start having this a similar conversation with their own board because of the conversations that we've had. Yeah, I was curious about that as to, you know, you're one of, I think, six regional museums associations around the US of the sort of uh, large associations. And I wondered how these different associations were influencing each other or feeding into each other with as much as the practicalities of tackling this. As you say, it was not, um, some of the hesitation wasn't necessarily about is this appropriate, but how do we make sure that we do this in ways that is fair to our organisations and fair to our museum members? Um, have you? Do you have conversations with other museum associations and other organisations about the work that you've been doing with this? We have, actually. So all of the board members with MPMA uh, tend to represent or have conversations with their individual state organizations. And then the MPMA staff and executive committee speaks very frequently with uh, the representatives and staff from other regional organizations. Uh, So we're all aware of what everybody else is doing and and, uh, open to having those conversations across boundaries, (laughs) across those geographic boundaries. Now, Will, I know that you can speak to this as well. I know that there are several states uh, that have started putting this topic on their agenda, but no decision has yet been made. And then I believe it's Kansas, um, and there's another state that that has followed suit and has started requiring uh, salary requirements on their job board as well. 
Yeah, so so within our own region, both Kansas and New Mexico um, kind of took note of the September board meeting where MPMA adopted this initiative and have since that time adopted the initiative themselves. And I know that uh, you know of our six-member committee, our Workplace Sustainability Committee, we each represent different states in the region, and each of us has taken this issue back to our states. And so if our states haven't pushed it through yet, it's certainly something that is part of the conversation at the board level uh, in the states too. And then just to echo what Lauren said, uh, our our staff with MPMA and in particular our executive director uh, do a fantastic job reaching out and talking to the other regional organizations through the Council of Regions and have certainly, as as we've been made well aware, been bringing this issue up with them and kind of hoping to to get them to move along uh, along a similar trajectory uh, as well. And I believe that the Mid-Atlantic Museum Association has also adopted this policy. Yeah, it seems actually that now that this is happening, it's it's moving quite quickly. It seems that there are a number of organizations that are starting to change their requirements and almost doing it not necessarily in um, in concert, but there, it does seem like uh, this is all happening quite quickly. Why do you think the habit of salary cloaking persisted within the museum sector for so long and why is it changing now so quickly? Well, maybe you can continue that. I mean, I, I would say that I think it persists in a lot of sectors. It's not unique to the museum sector. So there is a larger structure that is well beyond our control of that I think, you know, really needs to be addressed in our society. I can't necessarily speak to why it's persisted in the museum sector for so long, but certainly there's been a groundswell in in, in recent years of folks, especially emerging professionals, um, and and again, those kind of early to mid-career professionals, uh, feeling that the salary cloaking is inequitable and doesn't necessarily benefit anyone in any real capacity. And that's a lot of the conversation that we had with our, our members is, those that go out on the job market and apply for positions uh, find themselves overwhelmed by the number of positions that may be out there and in many instances choose not to apply for a position if it doesn't list a salary because they simply see it as a waste of their limited time and the amount of time that they have to apply uh, for work. And then, of course, if they do apply and they get to that interview stage, maybe even they get invited to come out and visit the museum and at that point they hear what the salary is and the salary is something that they and their families can't live off of, mm. then they feel like they've wasted a lot of their their time and, and money and effort. And you know, one of the hooks we had in con- uh, conversations with some of the the folks on the MPMA board that are that are further along in their careers and that are maybe on the hiring side of this conversation is that it's not really beneficial to their institutions either because they're bringing out these folks, they're spending their institutions' money to recruit them to try to um, entice them to accept a position at their museum, and then they're unable to offer them potentially a salary that is livable, and now they've wasted time and resources trying to recruit a a young uh, professional or a mid-career professional. And so uh, I think there's a growing awareness of of the fact that almost no one really benefits from uh, cloaking the salary uh, and that opening that up, making that available and being transparent about that kind of information actually can help everyone in this process and can save everyone a little bit of time and money. You mentioned that with the the Workplace Sustainability Council that you had done a survey around seven issues, I think you said, uh, looking at where people's priorities were. 
What are the other hiring practices and challenges related to hiring that you were interested in addressing um, at the MPMA or within that survey as sort of your, your first set of questions? Lauren, what, what were those questions you were asking? Uh, well, so we just, from initial conversations that the committee had, uh, we just developed a list of things that MPMA could foreseeably and realistically look at as action items. And we just presented those to the membership and had them basically tell us what their priorities would be, what they would prefer they we do, uh, how we could be most helpful to them, uh, how we could serve them best. Of course, the salary cloaking issue was by far and away the most important to them. Uh, mm-hmm. We also talked about uh, helping to equip our membership uh, knowing employee rights, negotiations, uh, exactly what you can and can't uh, ask for in in hiring uh, in regards to the type of organization that you're applying to. Uh, you know, the, the EMP, the Emerging Museum Professionals uh, Group, does a really fantastic job in equipping and providing resources to emerging museum professionals, to emerging employees. Uh, and we've been able to come alongside the MPMA group in that and helping to further their resources uh, and really use the membership and, and having a transparency with our membership so that they feel that there is a safe space for these conversations and mm-hmm. that there's a space where we can bring in uh, people on the hiring side, directors and administrators, who are able to share things from their perspective as well that, you know, people earlier in their career and mid-level may not completely understand or even be aware of. So at this point, we're really looking at bringing all of the appropriate voices together to have the conversations. Uh, And uh, even at the last annual MPMA conference, we had specific speaking sessions where we invited attendees to come in and just share some of their challenges. And we've used that conversation to then help direct uh, the Workplace Sustainability Committee and the things that we're going to be doing moving forward, uh, specifically with uh, hiring practices and addressing uh, work-life balance and, and a whole bunch of different issues coming together. But of course, it all stemmed and started from uh, that that job cloaking, the, the salary uh, listings was just far and away what everybody was thinking of uh, in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a real tide of pressure on this for institutions that are still thinking about adopting salary transparency that haven't yet, or for even institutions that haven't started thinking about it. I'd love if you could each make a case as to why they should. How does this help make a better sector for all of us? Well, you've started to touch on it a little bit, I think, by talking about um, fairness for everyone, including the institutions. But what what is the case that would compel an organisation to do this if they're not even thinking about it yet? Well, you know, in addition to what I think it can save an institution in terms of time and resources and, and not, um, you know, recruiting somebody who just simply will be unable to accept the job because of whatever uh, salary and compensation is available. Um, you know, I, I also, and Laura and I have talked a lot about this recently, uh, I also find it kind of mind-numbing and and 
ironic and the and the worst possible way for a field that prides itself on equity and inclusion to be struggling to be transparent about such a basic basic issue and yeah. you know if we're going to talk a lot about what museums can do to improve our communities and to create more equitable societies, and then we're going to play games with what we're willing to compensate our employees, it, 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 it strikes me as contradictory. And uh, for institutions that really embrace the notion of inclusion and, and diversity and equity in their practice and in the kinds of exhibitions and programs they put together, I would see this as an extension of that. Lauren, is there anything you'd add to that? Well, I mean, the practical applications uh, do present a bottom line issue here. But when we get beyond that, we're looking at developing a level of trust and transparency between employees and their organizations. And we know that people work better when they're they're able to trust uh, that they're being taken care of. And that starts at the very beginning from your first interview and developing that impression and that relationship. Uh, So if we're looking at creating and developing museum facilities that have a positive impact in their community uh, and that create a space where people can come and think and have conversations outside of themselves uh, that that challenge maybe their own perspectives, has to start with the staff that you have at that organization. And that staff can only present their best work when they feel that their organization uh, is on their side. And they can't know that, or or the very first step in knowing that, is having an organization that is transparent and open about what they can and can't offer an employee. And that, of course, starts with salary. Thinking about trust as something that is not just offered by the individual to the institution, but to the from the institution to the individual, and from in fact the individuals running an institution and working in an institution, that there are these significant relationships that are being built and developed, upon which all of the other work that we do happens. I, I think that trust is a really important point. Is there anything else thinking about this moving forward or how you'd like to see a sector changed by these kinds of actions? Where would you like to see the thinking continuing around hiring practices and this sort of equitable and fair hiring within the sector? Well, I'm happy to touch on that a little bit. Um... You know, first off, we want to emphasize again that that much of what Lauren and I are doing and what the Workplace Sustainability Committee is doing is guided by our our, our membership. And so it's not so much what, what we think needs to be dealt with, it's it's what the, the broader membership of MPMA is telling us Absolutely. are issues that they see that are affecting their daily lives. And you know, I'm sure Lauren can touch on this some as well, but you know, the, the, the issue after this job bank and salary uh, transparency conversation that, that I think we're seeing uh, dominate uh, much of what we've done so far in terms of the membership survey and the listening sessions we've held at conferences is the issue of, of, of work-life balance and what 
place an employee of a museum has in discussing work-life balance issues with their colleagues and with their superiors within the institution, with, with whoever um, hires them. You know, we, we see a lot of folks who get burnt out in the museum field because of how much work is, is required of them. And there was a lot of conversation, especially during our listening sessions at this past conference, uh, from folks who, who you know, took issue with the uh, other duties as assigned um, line that's that's so standard in many of our job descriptions, mm-hmm. and you know, really wondered if we could ask for more clarity on what that might mean, and if they were in a position or could be in a position to to have more open conversations with uh, potential employers about what other duties as assigned might contain, um, and you know, certainly talking to some folks too who who find themselves working you know so many evening events and weekend events and daytime programs and and really struggle to develop a personal social life outside of of work and. Uh, you know, there's a there's certainly seem to be some some questioning in the conversations we've had with with members over um, how much sacrifice should be asked of them, uh, how much of their personal life they should have to sacrifice uh, to work all of these additional programs without having time to to uh, you know being able to make up that time elsewhere. I guess is is what I'm trying to say, and I don't know if Lauren wants to add to that. I. It comes up every time we have a conversation about, uh, you know, a, a young lady who has a master's degree and yet she's working three part-time museum jobs because nobody will hire her full-time. Right. Uh, we have, I had a conversation with a young woman um, and, you know, somebody asked her, what do you think is the most important thing moving forward or, or uh, what would you tell people moving forward about the museum? And she said, you know what, I love my job, but I feel like I can't say no. So anytime her somebody comes to her in her organization and asks her to do one more thing, she feels like she has no choice but to say yes. Uh, and and recognizing that that these are issues, uh, recognizing that this is not something, well, this is how it's always been done, so we should continue in this. Uh, realizing that there are some barriers there uh, conceptually about how people should work uh, and, and you know recognizing too that this idea of working for a museum or working for a nonprofit uh, is a sacrifice and that you have to sacrifice in order to work there that that idea in and of itself feeds this inequity feeds this uh, issue of inclusion and, and automatically cuts people out uh, that there are automatically people who are not able to step forward and do the amazing work because they can't, because they can't live on uh, what's being offered or what's available. So I, I will mention this earlier too, this is a much broader issue. Uh, it is definitely an issue that we will mm-hmm. be struggling with <laughs> in a lot of ways moving forward. But I think the first step is just recognizing that it is an issue and having those spaces where we can have these conversations and allow, you know, as an org- service organization, allow our membership to drive that. Uh, and I think that for us, that was one of the most important things for us in making this job bank description decision and other decisions and action items that we're, we're working towards is having that be membership driven. 
and having those conversations up front. And, 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 and there open. have been several articles lately about especially millennial burnout and mm-hmm. that, that, you know, 20s and 30s somethings uh, feeling like exactly like Lauren said, that it's impossible to say no, feeling that if they're not working, they're not being productive and that they need to be productive. And so, you know, certainly this this conversation where we're hearing a lot of this work-life balance concern tends to come from that younger early to mid-career professional demographic and there are folks who just you know have been acculturated and and not just because they're museum people but by our, our larger society to feel like they have to be constantly pressing constantly working and constantly seeking you know a better opportunity and a better career and and you know what what it sounds like from our conversations with them they, they would like from a committee like ours is <clears throat> resources and tools to help them understand when it is okay to say no and to help them understand that, that it is in fact okay to have a balance between your passion for your museum, which is very deep and very strong, and your your personal life and, and your time outside of, of work. That it is okay to have a balance there and that it is okay to stand up for the need to have a balance there to prevent you from being burnt out. Because we are seeing, I think, throughout the museum field and a lot of other fields, we're seeing a lot of folks getting burnt out at a fairly young age uh, because of overwork and, and too much stress. And, and I think a lot of it can be traced back to these issues. Yeah, the downsides of the so-called gig economy of, uh, you know, having to have so many hustles on top of your, you know, your main hustle, uh, having the side hustles and the main hustle and always be working and, you know, pouring so much of yourself into the work that you're doing. Lauren, well, this has been really great. It's so useful to hear how not only your organization is tackling this, but how much of it is being member driven and really reflecting a deep desire for change within the sector. It is really useful to hear how organizations everywhere can be tackling this and institutions everywhere can be tackling this and that some of the changes can actually be relatively simple, but make a major difference. Thank you both for joining me on Museo Punks today. It has been so wonderful to hear about the work that you are doing with MPMA. Thanks for, ha- Thanks for having us. Michelle Epps serves as the president of the National Emerging Museum Professionals Network. She's been involved with the NEMPN since 2011 and has served as president since 2015. Epps currently works as the Community Engagement Coordinator at Spaces in Cleveland, Ohio, and is the interim museum educator at the Lakewood Historical Society. Much of her professional work involves creating access to the arts for vulnerable individuals, such as incarcerated youth, LGBT seniors, kids living in public housing, and homeless women and children. She has a master's in history with a specialization in museum studies and a certificate in nonprofit business management from Case Western Reserve University. Epps also serves on the advisory committee for Kent State University's Muse Lab and the Education and Museum Outreach Advisory Council for the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Michelle, welcome to Museopunks. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's such a pleasure. Now, you're the president of the National Emerging Museum Professionals Network. 
People might not be familiar with the EMP network, especially those who are themselves more established in their field. So can you tell us a little bit about the network and its history and its mission? Yeah, so we really kind of started about, um, <clears throat> I'd say almost like four years ago now, um, back in 2015, we formed out of the initiative that the American Alliance of Museums had put together back in 2010, which was focusing on people primarily within their first 10 years of their career. Um, and we've kind of continued this, except we don't really consider EMPs necessarily people that have just been in their career 10 years. We go much later and we view it as a more self-determining um, you know, kind of um, identification where if they feel they're still emerging, they can still be considered an EMP. We uh, feel that with people who have been um, maybe in a entry-level job for 15 years, but kind of still feel that they have more room to grow, um, that they consider themselves can consider themselves EMPs. Um, but if there's somebody that's like, you know, this is it for me. This is the where I, I'm resting my career. This is where I'm going to be developing. They would be considered established. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I had noticed that in the mission of the National EMP Network that it, it said that this is to engage museum professionals across all stages of their careers in building vibrant communities of networking, knowledge exchange and resource sharing. And I was quite interested in this idea that it is across all stages of their careers. You, you mentioned that it's sort of a self-determining idea of being emerging versus established. What do you find in common of the people who are drawn to the network? Is it that they're really interested in moving up? Is it that they're seeking a support network? What, what do you sort of see in your membership? So a lot of what we see are um... – we have a couple different layers that are going on. So we have our, you know, our predominant audience that is, um, or what we would consider our members that are, that are gr just graduated from a museum studies program, or maybe they've just recently switched. So they've worked in a totally different field mm. and they're coming to museums for the first time. Um, they may be an accountant, but it may be their first time accounting for a museum. Um, so they might, you know, seek us out to kind of see what the the trends are and what people are talking about. Um, but we do have a lot of what we would consider established professionals that are kind of following along with what we're doing, I guess, in a way to kind of see what the um, the emerging um, population is thinking and their mindset about certain things. So we have a wide range of an audience. Um, but the main thing in common, I think, is there are usually... Um, I don't want to say millennials, but they're typically in that, that age range. But we do, like I said, get a lot of people that are older or younger. Um, and their main thing is they, they typically want to make a difference in museums. Yeah, I think that's a really nice bit of motivation. What kind of activities is the network engaged in? So we have a couple initiatives that we do. Um, we do a journal called Theory and Practice, which we are collaborating with the Museum Scholar, which is an online journal. Um, and they focus on, I think they just started a partnership in Scotland as well. And they work as a, uh, a platform for journals relating to museum issues. And they they have a keen focus on EMPs because a lot of times um, there's not very many publication opportunities for people that are emerging in their career. Right. And um, so we kind of independently came to these ideas on our own and then realized we were doing the same thing. And we're like, well, they have the platform and we have the audience. So we partnered together so that we can get a peer reviewed journal off the ground. So um, emerging professionals can actually talk about these serious issues that are um, really dear to their heart and have an audience to do that instead of having to wait for a 
conference or, or you know, submit their article to a journal that may never um, be published. That's really great. So one of the activities that I think that you're doing that is super interesting is the salary range on museum job postings letter writing campaign. Can you talk a bit about this campaign and why you've decided to work with your network on it? Yeah, so that is, it's one of our, the initiatives we're doing. It's a staged initiative, so it's um, being released in a couple of steps. So the first one was we uh, were trying to convince other museum associations to switch the practice of posting jobs on their jobs boards without salary. And this is something that came out of... Um, a lot of activity on our Facebook group where people were lamenting the fact that they would look for a job, the requirement would say that they, need, they needed a master's degree <clears throat> or this, that, and the other kind of experience, um, maybe like six years experience. And they would think that they would be a good candidate for this job and they would go all the way through the hiring practice, getting to second interviews and final interviews and finding out that it was only paying like eight fifty an hour. Mm. And so that created a lot of... Um, you know, people that were upset. Um, I, I don't know if upset is the right word, but definitely kind of a trend of, you know, if I would have known that this was only paying eight fifty, I wouldn't have wasted my time or the hiring person's time uh, to seek this job out because it's not a job that I could afford to take. Yeah. Um, or we also get people that said that they felt pressured to take the job because they couldn't find anything else and, and a job is better than no job, but then they quickly try to find a way out. So, in the end, it's still the museum is left having to hire somebody else. And if they would have been honest with the, the pay rate right off the bat, then they may have found a person that was able to do that job for that rate. Um, but the way that we approach it is not not kind of um, criticizing the museums or the museum associations for not making this a requirement, um, because this is something that's fairly recent, in even in the larger job market, as far as uh, salary transparency goes. So we wanted to really talk with um, museum associations and tell them, you know, where we were coming from and see if they would consider changing. And we had a fair number of them that uh, had discussions with us and actually did make the change. There was about 26, 20, I mean, um, uh, about three of them, three to four of them had already actually had this pro uh, process in place. Um, but there was, you know, 22 to 23 that this is something they may have heard about, but didn't put too much, you know, thought on it. Uh, but then after having the conversations with us, they decided it was the best thing to do, like it was the best practice. Um, the organizations that felt that maybe um, they couldn't ob oblige us to, to make that change. Mm -hmm. um, we were seeing the same complaints of like, well, you know, there's reasons why museums, um, you know, don't disclose salary, you know, for negotiating purposes. They also don't want to make their um, fellow or their current employees disgruntled if they find out somebody can make more money than them coming on, you know, fresh. Um, and this idea that pay secrecy is um, something that's allowed to be asked of employees. So we went through very meticulously and identified those three areas and really laid them out about how it's kind of, um, it's not really, um, those issues are really non, they're not, it, it doesn't matter. Like there's, you know, of course you can't tell somebody you, um, that they shouldn't tell their salary to other employees because that's actually illegal. You know, there's there's protections in place where people can talk about their salary. Um, also, the issue of um, you know the disgruntledness. We kind of addressed it as well. If you're if you know your employees are going to be disgruntled, maybe this opens up a conversation for you about yeah. pay in general, about how you're compensating your employees. Um, and then also with the negotiation thing, we kind of feel that you know if you're going to pay somebody to do a job, you know what that budget is before you even 
post that position. So just pay the person fairly based on the position. So that's kind of the stance that we were coming from. Um, and so the organizations that said that they couldn't, um, you know, uh, require their their members to member so member organizations to um, kind of. Uh, you know, make this a requirement for their job postings, they were telling us, well, you should really be having these conversations with um, individual museums. Mm-hmm. And there's about, I think there's more now than 30,000 museums in the U.S. alone. And we're focusing just on, on the U.S. because there's, of course, if you look at Europe and um, even Asia right now, there's so many museums and museum studies programs popping up. Um, we figured we would just focus on the U.S., which is where we're based. Um, but they were telling us, you know, this is really a conversation that should be had one-on-one with museum um, hiring individuals and um, museums in general. So the next step that we took was, well, we can't have conversations individually and go out to every single museum and have this conversation. That's just impossible. So we really activated our membership to work as agents for us to notify us when um a museum job was posted without a salary. So we started our um, museum salary uh, transparency alert. And mm. it's just a Google form. It's really simple. It's nothing super fancy. And they can, while they're job searching, find um, if they come across a job that doesn't have a salary, they can alert us to this um issue and then we contact the museum on their behalf and say hey you know i noticed you didn't have salary listed for this position it's great it sounds like a great position um you know this is the reason why we uh think that you should include salary and please join us in this effort to to make museums um, a more equitable you know workforce and um we've done about um 60 emails we just started this last month so we haven't had um we're not dealing in like the hundreds yet. We're just kind of starting out. People are finding out about it. Um, but we've contacted about 60 museums. And um, one of those <laughs> has actually gotten back to us and started a dialogue about it, which to me is, is kind of a big win because I wasn't really yeah. anticipating a lot of response because, um, you know, as things come in your email, you may see it and just say like, eh, whatever. But what we're really hoping to do with that part of the initiative, that step, is to... Um, you know, saturate the conversation in the field. So that way it's not an excuse of like, well, I didn't know about that. I didn't, um, you know, I've never heard of it before. Um, so really saturating the information out there. That's great. How does salary transparency actually help make a fairer and more equitable sector, especially for emerging partic- uh, professionals? Well, I think one of the big concerns is because there is an increase, um, an increasing kind of, um, uh, focus on, on museum studies degrees. So since there's a lot of people graduating with museum studies degrees, it's kind of um, flooding the market with these people with with master's degrees or certificates or bachelors. So we're seeing more and more that that's almost like a requirement on a job to work in a museum. Not not across the board. Of course, there's definitely outliers. Um, but there's more because they're just so prevalent. It, it seems like that's something that a museum can require for filling a position, even though it might not necessarily really need somebody with a master's degree. Um, so we feel that, you know, if you have somebody who needs a master's degree, that comes with a lot of debt and a lot of time and a lot of expertise that you're actually going through and, and proving that you've, you know, know the knowledge and then turning around and paying them, um, minimum wage is kind of, um, it's not exactly fair, (laughs) um, especially if it's something where it's, it's not been disclosed. Um, so we, you know, we feel that if a person knows ahead of time um, that it's eight fifty or whatever the the price is, maybe it's ten dollars an hour, um, or the salary is twenty five thousand a year or whatever, that they can actually opt in um, 
to to actually do that job for that amount. Um, and so that person has already kind of set up that threshold of like, that's a job that I could do for that amount. But for most people, um, you know, they need to make a living wage to support themselves. And so this is kind of a larger focus of um, really kind of keying into the fact that we're not paying our cultural, um, you know, employees or our museum employees uh, a fair a fair price for what they're actually bringing to the organization. Um, I know a lot of times uh, small institutions are probably the the biggest, um, you know, um, organizations that kind of commit this um, <clears throat> to this like rate of like, you know, minimum wage or whatever, because that's what they could afford. Um, but in my mind, it's, it's, you know, if you're going to ask somebody to have a master's degree, then you should be able to pay them a mass what's worth the master degree. I don't know if I said that right, but <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to, if you are going to require that degree, then you better have the budget to pay them um, for that expertise. So beyond salary transparency, what other practices would help create a more equitable museum workforce? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, so the larger museum situation is you have a, a small a group of very large museums that are more bureaucratic and actually have, um, you know, clear paths to advancement. But most of the museums in the U.S. are small house museums or niche museums, and you know you could work that job, you know, for however many years you're there and not really advance. Um, and so the professional development isn't there. So a person who's taking on that job may actually only make 850 for the duration of their career. So there's no, there's no uh, look to cost of living. There's also this assumption that since you're working for a charity that you should be, you know, paid almost a poverty wage, um, which is extremely, I think, unfair to expect somebody to put all their time and effort and then, um, you know, basically tell them, well, you enjoy your job, so this should be payment enough. Um, But then there's also the issue of the fact that there's not that many positions available. Even though there are 30,000 plus museums, a lot of those museums, and I'm not going to say most of them, but there are a number of museums that actually employ their entire staff with uh, volunteers. Yeah. And um, I think when we're talking about our shared cultural heritage, how vulnerable that leaves some of our collections. I mean, with the, you know, Notre, Notre Dame just burning down. I mean, I know they're, they're you know, not... Um, they're not volunteer run, but um, when you think of that on a smaller scale, the fact that non-professionals are being asked to caretake our shared um, culture and be the stewards of that, but yet they don't have the knowledge on how to do that. So there's, I think there's a larger, there's several larger problems that are impacting the museum field, and, and one is that professionalization. Yeah. Are there unique challenges that emerging professionals and in this case I do mean those in the earliest part of their career not those who are emerging later in their career um, face within the first those first few years yeah so I think um, for some individuals so this generation that we're working with now um, which I guess there's like the cusp of Millennials um, <clears throat> and they're this is their you know first uh, this is their, they want to work in museums. That's their career. That's where they see their life. They are very keyed into social issues and they see the museum as an agent for change. And what they, and what I see a lot is they'll get employed at a museum or they'll have a difficulty time getting employed in a museum because of how they feel about certain things. Mm. So in a larger institution who, when they hear the word decolonization might not bristle, they might say, oh, that's, 
probably something we should look into or something to at least be aware of. But if you go into a smaller place in a smaller town and you use words like decolonization or diversity inclusion or these kind of things, um, there's this barrier that goes up because it means change. Mm. And a lot of these institutions or a lot of museums are change averse. And so, you know, when you have a person who's bright eyed and bushy tailed coming right out of graduate school that's saying, I want to change the world with museums, and there's that potential there, and they see it, especially in larger institutions. And then for them, it's actually even hard to get into the door to actually even make those changes. So for them, there's a lot of frustration um, because they have all these great ideas, but um, there's just either an unwillingness to change or, you know, they get the pat on the head of like, oh, that's, that's nice. You know, you just haven't been exposed long enough to the interior workings of the museum to actually make that happen. But, um, but yeah, so this, this group of this population is very concerned with diversity, inclusion, um, issues uh, relating to provenance of objects where donations are coming from. And I think by the larger you know, like established professionals, maybe not all established professionals, but definitely administration, it looks like a kind of rocking of the boat. And, um, and of course, you know, if you have somebody that might come onto your staff and, and rock the boat, then you're not going to employ them because they, they don't fit with your quote unquote culture. Right. Or unless, you know, I think there are institutions that seek that. But as you say, if this is sort of a, a generational change, if this is a change that we're seeing in a large population coming through, that again becomes a question of competition for relatively few um, positions in institutions where there may already be a commitment to this kind of work. So I think the number of museums that actually are really committed to this work are probably not as many as the organizations that are just kind of just, you know, doing their day to day and not really thinking about larger trends or future trends or anything like that. Yeah. In some ways, as you speak, though, it seems to me that that's also potentially an opportunity for um, these emerging professionals to be creating spaces for themselves within institutions. I mean, that becomes a, there are these difficult things to navigate around internal culture, but it also becomes a skill set and a way of thinking that you can bring into a place that maybe doesn't have anyone else guiding these conversations that they're probably being asked to be part of in some ways anyway. Yeah, I think there's um, the idea that there's a lot of room for growth and that this perspective is um, one that's kind of a fresh perspective that could, you know, really change um, the museum structure to include, you know, different populations that they've never included before, or maybe think about their their collection in a way of like, maybe we need to change the narrative a little bit to where it's not just one sided. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot, there is a lot of enthusiasm, I think, around that. And the possibility is something that's very encouraging. Um, I just think like the, the mass, you know, adoption of it is going to be dependent on people that actually have this passion getting in those positions. And um, with the current state of museums being, um, you know, the majority being small museums, it's, it's a very difficult thing to kind of wedge yourself in to actually make that, um, that case. Um, but I think once you're in there and you have a receptive audience that it actually could be very fruitful and um, push things kind of in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Would you suggest uh, for someone who's coming, say, out of a museum studies program now, who is very motivated by a desire to help change the sector, would you suggest being open and upfront about that urge to change, you know, even in interviews and in discussions or to 
have that be something that they're a little quieter about until they get in the door and then sort of work to make that change. You know, I'm glad you asked that question because that's something I kind of struggle with when I see um, the conversations forming on our Facebook group is, um, you know, what is the approach? I mean, you don't, you don't want to be deceitful and kind of, you know, be like a sleeping dragon. And then when you come in, then it's like, ah, this is, I want to change everything. Um, And I think sometimes if you're overly honest in an interview, they may say like, yeah, well, that's not, you know, whoever's interviewing you may be like, well, we're happy with the way things are. So I don't really know the correct answer for that. I think, um, I think it would largely depend on the institution, but I think, um, yeah, I, that's a tough one because yeah. it's it almost seems like what it's encouraging <clears throat> is that people do just that. They kind of keep to themselves until the opportunity is right to then kind of launch this, um, you know, this this effort to, to change things a little bit from the inside and moderating it. Um, but I also think, too, like transparency has a lot to do with just, um, you know, improved communication. So I, I do kind of struggle with this idea because for me it's like if somebody can understand the rationale behind what you why you're doing it then they might go along with you but sometimes people just shut their ears off before um you know even getting to that point so i wish i knew the answer but that is that is a tough one and it's something that i kind of struggle with every time i see these conversations pop up yeah it's something i i myself struggle with like one of the nice things about having had kind of a public persona as I've been figuring out a lot of these things myself is, you know, I can't hide my perspectives. Anyone who ever seeks to hire me in the world is going to know what they're getting with me, but I'm also established. And I think there's, it becomes a trickier boundary that you're walking if you're someone who's really committed to a lot of sort of changing practices, but you're still just figuring out how to get a job in the first place. Yeah. And I think a lot of people too, because they are, you know, they, they feel very strongly about their views and and rightly so. But I think sometimes, you know, you don't know who's watching you on social media and you don't know who's, you know, knows who. And, and so there's a lot of that going on too, where it's like you, you may not even disclose it in an interview, but then somebody else may be like, you know, I used to work with them and they're just, you know, they're X, Y, Z. And, um, and I think that's really, you know, kind of a horrible situation to be in because, you know, if you're, if you're the person that's the best fit for that job to make those changes, but yet you can't even get in the door because, um, of your reputation as being somebody who's vocal, that's, that's exactly who you want in that position to make those changes. So it's just kind of, it's interesting. And and like I said, I don't really think that there's a clear cut answer. I, I wish there was, because that would be definitely something I would be advising our members to do. Um, and I do think it's on a case-by-case basis, but it definitely complicates things when the people that are best suited for bringing these issues to light and are really passionate about it can't even get a job at a museum to do that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> so if we were to reach a point where salary transparency was widely adopted, where we had institutions that um, were concerned with these issues and trying to think about how they themselves can be better hirers. How do you think the museum field might change? Well, I think you'd get a lot of people that are fit for the job. Like I think, you know, especially when I look at small museums, um, sometimes it's just whoever's in the room at the time, it, there's an opening. And um, so I think what would happen is a sense of like a standardization really of, um, of skill. So, <clears throat> you know, a person that is, um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that they need their master's degree, but there would be an expectation of professionalism that just is not in the field right now. And 
I think that would just elevate the field because then you have people that are working at their best. You have the best employees for the job. And they're really concerned with not only propelling museums forward, but you know, caretaking what so many people in the past have painstakingly worked to achieve. So I, I think for the continuity of the field, it's like it's just important to have professionals me, being, you know, making a professional wage, taking care of that, uh, our, our shared collective culture. Yeah. As, as someone who's been in the sector now for oh, around a decade, I think, if I go back to your bio, what do you wish someone had told you when you were just first starting out? I don't know. That's a hard one because I, I kind of grew up in um, museums. Like I, I knew it was I, when I was younger, of course, I wanted to be like a veterinarian or somebody working at a zoo because I loved animals. But when I got a little older, um, museums were very comfortable and it was a place that I could see myself working. And then when I got to college, it was very clear, like, I'm going to be working in a museum. Um, but I wish I would have, uh, you know, really been aware of the the lack of, <laughs> of um, I wouldn't say livable salary, but the, the disparity in the salary between organizations um, and the fact that funding is greatly different. So, mm. you know, a museum that's very large has a, a lot more money to pull from, but yet a small museum, um, you know, does not have the funding to do all the great things that um, a larger museum can do with, with the budget they have. So I think just being aware of, you know, that, that kind of difference um, and, you know, that you are going to have to um, put in a lot of, <laughs> you know, free uh, time to get where you are. I mean, I did several internships before I, I landed my first job. Um, and I think that's not something that's being taught to prospective museum um, professionals is the fact that even though you have that degree, perf- you know, um, uh, experience trumps that and mm-hmm. that it's really something you need. So you're, you're going to have to you know, find a way to get that experience. If you can't afford it, then you're going to have to find other ways to make it work because that's going to be the ultimate way to get in the field. Yeah. And again, that then becomes the same question of how we make a field that is equitable and fair so that people can actually afford to do the stuff to get the jobs in the first place. Yeah. I mean, yeah. One of the things that we've been seeing a lot and um, it kind of prompted the, um, the focus on salary specifically was there were so many people having these very explosive public blogs or posts saying how they were leaving the field um, and that they loved themselves too much to put themselves through um, the low wages, the long hours, the, the, the inability to find a job um, on themselves any longer. And it was, um, it was a really kind of dig at their, their own personality because they identified as a museum professional, which I thought was interesting. Um, and then leaving it was um, almost like, you know, um, telling everybody that you're now a vegetarian or you're now like a vegan or something. It was like this big, you know, emotional um, response. And um, so when we looked at the underlying clauses, we're like, what's going on here? But I think it's, you know, it is really interesting to see how people identify themselves with that. And it's hard for them to make that break um, to actually being okay with leaving the field because they've identified themselves so much with that, with the field it's just interesting hearing you speak a couple of times you've spoken about um, the kind of emotional responses that people have when they say go through a search and then realize they can't possibly take the job or when they feel the need to leave the sector because it turns out they it wasn't sustainable for them 
to some extent the choices that our individual institutions are making have bigger implications in terms of then how the sector as a whole is viewed and how people come to it or decide not to come to it. If if you were to give a call out, if, you know, per your letter writing campaign, you were able to speak to the HR managers of all of the institutions here in the US, what would you say to convince them that salary transparency is the right thing? Yeah, I think, uh, well, what we've been saying to them is the fact that it's um, not only is it the right thing to do. So if you're if you're an organization that is very public facing and saying, you know, we want to, you know, be inclusive of our, our um, community and have a very strong community focus, it's kind of hypocritical then to turn around and try to see how little money you can put out there to get the talent for the very person that's going to be doing that job. Mm. Um, And it also kind of lends itself to, uh, it's not like direct, you know, um, pay discrimination, but when you have um, somebody who, I mean, there's no clear cut answer of like what they mean by like, so we come across this a lot where it's like salary commensurate with experience. Well, they don't really identify what experience. Mm. So it kind of lends itself because it's not, it's all hush hush and behind closed doors that you can actually justify paying somebody for the same job less or more. And um, for us, it's like, just pay. I mean, you know how much money that you have for this position budgeted already, just pay, you know, the person we, I, I know there's a lot of push for, for museums to act like businesses, but we're not. But we're adopting a lot of business practices that are just not fair to the workforce. I mean, we're already working in nonprofits, so chances are your salary is a little lower. But why have somebody basically tried to get you for the, the least amount of money they possibly can? They should just be paying and, and you know giving you fair compensation for what you're providing, regardless of you know what... Um, you know your previous experiences was if you were if you were seen as being good enough to get that job then they should pay you that same wage michelle i think that makes a lot of sense if people want to find out more about what you're doing or more about the national emp network where can they do so yeah, so they can visit us at our website, which is nationalempnetwork.org. Um, they can also email me directly, which is uh, president at nationalempnetwork.org. And then, of course, we actually have a really lively um, community on our Facebook group, which is basically just emerging museum professionals. Um, and they can join and join the conversation. Yeah, that is great. Michelle, thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Will, Lauren, and Michelle. It is great to hear the work you're doing to build habits of transparency into the sector. In the next couple of months, Museo Punks is going to be going through a few changes. In early April, I put a call out for a new collaborator and co-host of the podcast on my blog. A ton of people reached out. It was a little overwhelming and I really shouldn't have done this at the end of semester, um, including some people who I know well and some people who I don't. I had a series of conversations with people over the last several weeks about the show and about what a partnership might look like. In the end, I've ended up with a partner who is a friend and a collaborator from other parts of the museum world. He's even been a guest co-host on this show before. 
Ed Rodley, whose dulcet tones you heard in your ears last month, is going to be joining me in a coming episode as a collaborator, a co-host and a co-producer of the show. The decision to do an open call rather than merely reaching out to my networks was aimed at finding the people whom I could never have imagined. And even though the process took me back to a trusted colleague in the end, the discussions that I had were wonderful and generative, and they've really encouraged me to think more creatively about other forms of collaboration that might make sense within this show, such as having regular guests or correspondents from the field. I don't know exactly what form that's going to take, but the next few months will include some behind-the-scenes discussion, exploration, and experimentation as we look at the longer-term impact of conversations around the future of Museopunks. So here's to brighter and different futures. Museopunks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. You can connect with me on Twitter at Museopunks and check out the extended show notes at museopunks.org. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher. As you head out into the world today, be brave, try something new, do something kind for somebody.